0: Sunday is a great day for Christians, right? We're reminded of our Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, I guess somewhat anticlimactically, if you will, on the back of a donkey, but celebrated in praise nonetheless. This Sunday prepares the way, though, for next Sunday, which is Easter, when we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. But between the celebration of Jesus and his victory and vindication on Easter Sunday morning comes a week of suffering. Not because Jesus was a helpless victim, but precisely because Jesus is the lion who became the lamb that was slain. And it's, it's, it's very hard for us. Our minds really can't wrap around grasping who Jesus was on this earth as fully God and at the same time fully, legitimately human. But we need to understand, we need to grasp this as well as we can that he was as human as he was divine. So according to what we read in the book of Hebrews, that the son of God learned obedience through what he suffered that's unique to Jesus. We ought to become more aware of just what it took for Jesus to go to the cross for us. In John twelve twenty seven, just after the palm branches waved for him, Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So the praising and the celebrating stopped. Soon after the palm branches quit waving, Jesus would have to make a decision. Would he complete what he had been sent to the earth to do? Or would Jesus balk because he was also fully human and say, I just cannot do all of this? And it's here that you and I come to this text this morning, beloved, in Philippians 2. Jesus wasn't able to endure what he did because he was magic. He wasn't pretending to have to do this. Jesus Christ decided apparently to die to himself long before they nailed him to a cross. And beloved, you and I are called and commanded by God to the exact same thing. The exact same type of mindset. And I want to tell you this morning, we don't have it in us. We cannot do this if we're honest. So what do we do? As Christians and we bump up against a command in the scripture that we literally, if we're being honest, cannot obey or at best can't obey perfectly as Jesus obeyed. And forget, forget that, well, I can't obey it perfectly, of course, but God knows my heart. No, 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 no. God doesn't command us to have the heart for things. God commands us to do the things. All this talk about how if we're truly born again, we'll at least have the desire in us, right? To do good works. Well, so what? What does that do? Is that why Jesus died? So that we would simply have the desire to do good because we didn't have that before. That desire to please God is not the righteousness from God that comes by faith. That's in us. We want to please him. We don't need, think about this for a minute. We don't need the Holy Spirit necessarily to do good works. People do good things all the time without the Holy Spirit or without any thought of God whatsoever. Even things, albeit unknowingly, that God commanded of His people. Sometimes they do it better than we do. They're kind. They can be. Patient. Giving. They don't murder. They don't steal. They don't commit adultery. Right? Why aren't they saved? Why aren't they pleasing God? To be a Christian is something else. We need saved because God knows our hearts. He knows that nothing good dwells in our flesh before or after conversion. When Paul makes those statements in Romans, they're binding. There's nothing good in the flesh. The fact that man looks at the outward appearance but God looks on the heart is one of the scariest things in the universe. We can't hide from Him. We can't hide anything from Him that we might be able to successfully, for a long time, hide from people. He knows. He knows. And so, even in good works, if our hearts are tainted for one second by the belief that these things make us acceptable to God or are doing something to accomplish our salvation before God, our righteousness is like filthy rags, which is why, beloved, God told us that's what they are in the book of Isaiah. Are we willing to trust? Now think about it now. Are we willing to trust that we simply wish that what we simply wish we could do, desire we could do, that that's evidence that we're in Christ, that we're no longer in or of the world, but now we're in Christ. Why? How do you know? Because now I want to do good things. That this desire to please God and do good works is coming from the spirit and not from the flesh where it probably was before. Only God knows us that well, beloved, because only God knows our hearts. We don't even know our own hearts. Why would we ever trust ourselves for anything? beloved we all know what's right this morning we all know what's right all have the law of God written on our hearts and as Christians we, we see the law of God there we even delight in it in our inner beings in Romans 722 but maybe as Christians we haven't come to reckon honestly yet with the fact that while we have this desire to please God we still don't have the ability to to do it, even though we have the Holy Spirit just as Paul did when he wrote those things. So desire isn't going to do anything. It isn't really proving anything. In fact, the more orders we hear, the more law that we get, the more advice and instruction we receive the more our flesh will come alive and try to do it and only succeed in increasing our sin because we can't do it perfectly. In Romans 8, 3 and 4, the law instructions won't kill sinful flesh or sin. In fact, they will bring it to life. Our problem we need to consider is that we try too hard We don't lack information. We don't lack knowledge of what to do and what not to do. We lack the ability to trust that the righteousness of Christ is all God requires, and therefore we are free. And according to Romans 8, 1 through 17, only free people can please God. So what do we do when we bump up against commandments that if we're honest, we can't obey? And again, I'm not talking about commands against drunkenness or something. Pagans can avoid getting drunk when they have the desire to not get drunk. You don't need the Holy Spirit for that. I'm talking about commands from the Holy Spirit like Paul gave here in Philippians chapter 2, our text this morning. When we bump up against the command that we know we can't obey or at least can't obey perfectly, what do we say? Well, you know, given that I'm in God's grace, I don't have to do this. I don't have to worry about it. That's one way to respond. Well, there's an even... That's not a good way, but there's an even worse way to respond. Do we we pray for the desire to do it, which which shows that we're believing if we have the right instructions, have the right direction, and enough want to... We can do this. Or ideally, do we fall onto Christ, trusting that His Spirit will do what He wills in us, when Christ has already performed what God requires. That is the freedom of the believer through which the Spirit in Galatians will produce His fruit. Before that, we're in the way. Of the Spirit producing fruit, because we're trying to mix flesh with Spirit, desire with grace, and then produce something. But we can't do that. We don't produce our own fruit with the help of the Spirit. We produce the fruit of the Spirit with no help whatsoever from the flesh. And to get there, we have to be free. That's the heart we want to pray to have. We are called as Christians to have the exact same mind in us that Jesus Christ had in his willingness to embrace the will of God, even to the point of death on a cross. So let me pray and we'll look at this passage. Father, as you will and as you know, have mercy on me, for my sins are many. Have mercy on this congregation. Father, have Your way through Your Word this morning. I beg You, help me trust You for this text and this sermon. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. The basis for Paul's argument here is initially found in verses 1 through 4 where he tells them, tells this church in Philippi that his, the fullness of his joy as their teacher in the faith would be realized when the Philippian church was finally of one mind. All those different people, one mind. So he told them, since that is what he wants, he told them. To do nothing as a church, as individual members of a church, from selfish ambition or conceit. In verse 3, to look not only to their own interests, but to the interests of others. In verse 4, what we have is this passionate plea for a unified church who is so selfless, who is so dead to personal agendas and desires, so united in the same spirit that she is completely given over and striving together with one mind, side by side, for the faith of the gospel, back in chapter 1 verse 27. Five times in nine verses, he tells them to have one mind, or the same mind in 2-2 or this mind in 2-5, engaged in the same conflict back in 130. Christians must all have the same mind, united for one purpose, dead to personal agendas and desires, dead to personal preferences, For the sake of the gospel. The implication very clearly being those things get in the way of being united in one mind for the sake of the gospel. That is for the sake of its proclamation so the people might be saved. But then it's here in verse 5 finally where he gets specific and tells us just what that mind is. Where did God point us to see the mind he wants us all to have as his church towards the world And towards one another, in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This mind, this one mind, is specifically the mind of Christ. So the command is, Christians, think like Jesus. That is, be laser focused on the will of God. Be unwavering in your commitment to Him. Never falter and never fail, even to the point of death. So who's in? Who's in? That's what's commanded. Not desire, beloved, that. Read that text, okay, I'll try. God, I'll do my best. Mm -mm. No. You must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. See, when you push works, you get cheap law. Right? You get cheap law. God knows your heart. You're doing your best. He'll pat you on the head. Oh, that's not why Jesus died. This mind is the mind of Christ. And he describes the mind of Christ as this, to be specific, in verses 6 through 8. Jesus didn't hold on to his his divinity, to his advantage, in verse 6. Jesus is fully God in human flesh, but he didn't count his divinity, his equality with God, as a thing he could use to his advantage in this world. Just consider that. Meditate on that for a minute. What do we look to in ourselves that we might be able to use to our advantage in this world, in our lives, in our church? What do we see in ourselves that we think, I could, I could use that, right? I could capitalize on that. Jesus didn't hold on to his divinity, the, the privileges of divinity as an advantage over others. What about us? Do we use our Christianity, right, our desire to be morally upstanding as an advantage over others? Do we cling to that? Do we use our standing in the church maybe to gain an advantage in the church? Or our standing in the community to gain one in the community? Or our money, our positions? Do we use these things to our advantage in any Sense that we are doing that in any sphere of our lives we are not having the mind of Christ and we are sinning Jesus was in the form of God and didn't do that the life of Jesus wasn't shaped by how he could use his divinity what was good about him to get ahead but by the fact that he had come to die for people that's how he shaped his life in the world. So he also had to die spiritually very early and every day to any inkling that he was here for his own advantage, gaining something, doing something for himself. Not one moment of his life was shaped by that. Beloved, can you imagine the commitment and dedication that it took not just to think like that, but to literally live like that? That's what we're talking about here. Remember, a call to a certain mindset is by default a call to certain action. What the mind believes is what determines our behavior. I use this example all the time. The reason I don't jump out of a plane with no parachute is because I believe in gravity, right? It's that basic. What the mind believes will determine one's behavior. So that's what the text is after here. I want you to have this mindset because this is how I want you to live and this mindset is what will get you there, So we aren't being called here to sometimes be able to pull off just thinking a certain way, but to always, like Jesus, act on what our mind thinks. So again, who's in? Who wants to give it a shot? And if we fail would say that maybe, maybe we aren't a Christian. Maybe we're not serious enough about God, beloved, the arrogance of a mind that is not settled in Christ. This meant Jesus never used people. Ever. Ever. It meant people weren't a means to an end for Jesus. And it was because He didn't count His divinity as a thing to use for His own advantage. That he was able to strive with his whole life for the sake of the gospel. And so with that in mind, I hope if you can remember, we're beginning to see what Paul was really arguing for then in our text last week in Philippians chapter 3. To have the mind of Christ for us is to forsake any confidence in our works for our salvation or for our sanctification. To forget anything we might try to use for our advantage this is how I know I'm saved, and you probably aren't, right? Anything like that, we do away with it. So that we may actually be like Christ, and give our time on this earth for others' sake rather than our own. I mean, let's be honest. We've been getting beaten over the head as Christians in America for about 100 years now. To be more committed, more serious Do more for God Several years ago this book comes out called Radical That that, that if you're really serious David Platt says that's the Christianity you'll want you'll, you'll question whether or not you should even have an air conditioner Which he had one by the way But that's apparently beside the point Right? We know what's right Don't play the game that well we don't know unless you tell us Yes you do The law of God is written on your heart. You have the Holy Spirit. What's the problem? I could get up here and press what you're supposed to do. But that's been happening in the church in America for at least a 100 years. Probably more. Probably can go back to the second great awakening in the Enlightenment to see when all that came into the church. So why isn't America... Christian. Why isn't the church more serious and less selfish and less petty? Why Is it because we lack the information? Because the preachers aren't doing a good enough job of telling you what you need to do if you really are righteous and really in Christ? We've had that. Churches have less attendance now than they did 20 years ago. Seventy-six percent I read in A magazine article, I can't remember where it was, it came from Barna Research. 76% of parents are worried more than anything that their children are going to leave the church when they graduate high school. Three out of four. Why are we still asking questions? What don't we know at this point? What What is it that I, Tony Romano, with my limited brain could say to you and tell you that will finally make the shoe drop and you start living right. We've had that. And here we are. Moundsville unreached for the gospel. So what's the problem? Look, you can log on to Facebook now if you want to and some well-meaning Christian will be telling you what you should do and where you should go and where you shouldn't go and... What you should say and what you shouldn't say and what products you shouldn't buy because the, the, you know, the, the monster drink might have the image of the beast on it. So you don't want to buy the monster drink now, right? They'll tell you everything. Get the vaccine. Don't get the vaccine. Do you love your neighbor? Then get it. Well, if you love your neighbor, you won't get it. Pastors are about pointless now. You can find one on the internet that says what you want to say, right? For his whole life, Jesus Christ was engaged in one conflict. One. All the other stuff going on in the world. One conflict. That took wholesale, daily, second by second, minute by minute, death to self. Wholesale death to self. And it's gonna end in literal physical death to self. That's the only way that life ends. Think about how that would have shaped even his everyday life among people, right? He wouldn't have gotten in petty arguments because he wouldn't have wasted any time, any time. We're commanded in the book of Ephesians to make the best use of the time. Think about what God requires, not the preacher. God requires any second of a day that you are not making the best use of your time that you could be using. You're sinning according to Scripture. So how serious do we want to get about good works, and desire, and attitude, and knowledge? How serious do we want to get? If that's what we're going to look to, and well we don't, yes we do, or God's a liar. Jesus wouldn't used anyone as a means to an end. There was no bragging. There was no posturing or deceit to make sure what he wanted would be pursued and he was God. How does God say, no, no, I'm not going to force you to do this. How does God say that? It's God. He can do whatever he wants. He could have made us all robots if he wanted to. Why is it this way? He had died spiritually to any need to be validated by anything or anyone on the earth. So his mind was fixed on God to the point that even his own divinity wasn't used for his advantage. We are called to forsake our humanity, beloved. That's lower than divinity. And we can't do it. Not just the flesh that wants to sin, But according to Paul in Philippians 3, the flesh that wants to do right also. Scripture teaches that nothing in the flesh is good and nothing in the flesh pleases God. Are we willing to die to self enough to believe and embrace that and live by it? Paul is basically arguing in verses 5-6 through that we can't even use our standing in Christ to our own advantage. That's not what it's for. Interestingly, however, did we know that Paul is commanding us in Philippians to have something? He already said we have in 1 Corinthians 2.16. Believer Paul says we have the mind of Christ. So, why aren't we acting like it? We have this mind in us, Paul says in, again in 1 Corinthians 2.16. So why is there any type of breakdown? Why is there any disobedience? Any half-witted, half-hearted obedience? Why is that there? We have the Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. What's the problem exactly? We think that, again, this would be cheap law. If we spend... Maybe, let's say you can pull off three of seven days in a week, all together, if you put the hours together, being good and Christian as you can be. That's, that's not too bad. Not being facetious, that's not too bad. That's three out of seven days, maybe four. I mean, if you're really serious, maybe you can pull off five days in a week. If you put all the hours together... What's keeping us from obeying perfectly? Say, well, my flesh. Yeah, but you have the mind of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. What's the problem? Jesus' flesh didn't keep him from obeying. Why Why does it keep? Well, because he was God. He was also fully man. Right? I mean, God became a human being. Why, when he took on what we are, did he not become, in the sense of sin, what we are? And if we're new and born again, a new creation, how is sin even in the equation? We have the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ, we're blessed with Christ, blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, raised with Him, seated with Him, buried with Him in baptism, raised to new life. Why are we still struggling to get it right? To the point that we are fretting, nervous, that if, if, if we preach too much grace, people are not going to do what they're called to do. You can have all those advantages. You're still not doing it. So why are there questions? Maybe we should pump the brakes on our performance, being a marker of anything, when we have the Holy Spirit and have the mind of Christ Himself, And still struggle. Do we realize how flimsy our commitment to the mission of Jesus, the conflict he was engaged in, really is when apparently, as we're reading here, it's dependent at least in some sense on our ability to get over ourselves. When was the last time you experienced a person getting over themselves for somebody else's sake? We can't even get over ourselves in a in a drive-through, in a business meeting, because of a song we like, because of a tradition that we don't want to go away. That doesn't matter what Philippians two says. I will get my way, Christian, right? It doesn't matter what the Bible says. I, when I want to gossip, I'll gossip, right? When I want something, I'm going to push for it. It's it's my right. If I think it needs to be said, I'm going to say it. I don't care what the Bible says about my mouth being you you know, this tiny little spark that can set a whole forest on fire, and I, I can't tame it. I don't care. Christians talk like that, which means they're disobeying this as much as they're disobeying the specific text that addresses the sin they're committing. What are we using a scale for? Unless we've made it, And so we're fulfilling those tasks that we think make us righteous or make us look righteous. We're doing the things on that list, but we aren't doing all the things on God's list. Sounds to me like that person needs grace. We can't get out of our own selves for 10 minutes, let alone a lifetime, beloved. Do we see what Jesus is actually calling us to? Not Effort or desire, but actual obedience. That's the standard. So if we aren't perfectly obeying, again, then what are we hesitant about grace for? If nobody's perfect, they need grace. Is anybody willing to say, listen, what you're saying is not for me. I'm perfect. Right? And look, dead serious, if you can't raise your hand, you need grace. Who is sufficient for these things? When was the last time we asked that? Paul says in light of his calling to be a minister in 2 Corinthians 3, and the message he's called to bear, and what the lost function actually is in light of the fulfillment that Christ has brought, he says, who is sufficient for these things? Who can preach like we're supposed to preach? Who can give this message? Who can believe it? And we're all walking around like, listen, if I had a book that told me 17 ways to love my wife, I could do it right, because the problem isn't your wicked selfish heart, it's that you don't know the 17 ways to love your wife it's not that hard don't be a self-righteous over-officious chauvinistic jerk to her the end Oh, I don't know how to do that well, by all means come to me for the advice. Right? Because that's what preachers do. We don't we don't take it. We don't take the law seriously enough. We don't have the have the mind of Christ. He was fully God and fully man. How do I do that? How do I die to self that much? Well, if you, if you tell me the six ways To have the mind of Christ and humble yourself, well, then I could do it. No, you couldn't. No, we couldn't. But, Tony, Jesus understands that I can't obey Him perfectly. Sure, He does. So why doesn't He lighten the commands? Why do I have to have the mind of Christ? Right? Why do I have to forgive as God in Christ forgave me? Why do I have to love my neighbor as myself? Right? All that's in the New Testament, beloved. Right? Why do I have to count others more significant than myself? Like, these are all things that sound like Jesus wrapped up in... Yeah. So if we aren't doing that, that's the standard, then we should be a little hesitant to be told what to do. Maybe the commands are here as they are to break us, not raise the bar for the more seriously committed. Maybe the law of Christ, which is what this is, according to Paul, maybe it comes in in the text time and time again to wreck us, just as a constant reminder of what God actually requires So that none of us thinks too highly of ourselves and just throws all of our hope, all confidence, all our good intentions onto Christ and just lives freely. What if the commands are deliberately unattainable so that we won't have any delusions of grandeur that would give us an excuse to get engaged in a different conflict than the proclamation of the gospel? Like this war with my flesh to mortify sin. That's not the conflict to be engaged in. The... The fruit of the Spirit will be produced when we are abiding in the vine. Why do the branches think they can produce fruit? Do we believe the words of Jesus or not? Because often it sounds like we don't trust what He said about the vine. And beloved, if in John 15, if apart from Him we can do nothing, if the growth of the branch depends on abiding in the vine, the focus of our lives should be abiding. Abiding. Not doing. Do I want to produce the fruit God requires and that God is pleased by? Which is something only Jesus can produce. Not a human can produce when they just have the feeling. But the righteousness God requires. If I want to produce that, if I want to see that coming out of my life, shouldn't my focus be on abiding since that's what does it? Not doing? We really think That that we have the Holy Spirit, but that means something has happened to our flesh. Which now, if you're if you're really saved, you'll you'll want to do these things. You'll want to grow, right? That's well, you if you want to grow, you need to be in the vine. Not taking lessons on how to grow fruit. You need to be in the vine. In verse 7, Jesus emptied himself, not in the sense that he ceased being fully God. In his humanity. No, he emptied himself in a very distinct and precise way. The text says by taking the form of a servant that is a slave. And and are we saying no, 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 Jesus, look, you've done enough for me. You are not going to serve me anymore. I am going to serve you now. That's what I want to do. That's what I desire to do. Let me do something for you. Do we understand that that's like a borderline blasphemous role reversal of servant and receiver. He became a slave to us. And then he told us very clearly, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? He goes right from his service to his death, just like his mind goes right from death to self to death on a cross. Right? Christians have to find a way to serve God as receivers, beloved, not as givers. That's reversing the roles we have. How how do we do that? It's, it's, It's almost like we're going to have to lean on Christ and trust that the Spirit will do this in us as He conforms us to the image of God in our lives or the image of His Son. So, we're going to have to find a way in our hearts to let Jesus be our servant in salvation, or we're crossing purposes with Him. How can you say that about Jesus? Because Jesus said it about Jesus. I'm quoting Him. Jesus emptied Himself by becoming our slave, being born in the likeness of men. So, from His conception to His ascension, He is condescending to us, beloved. He was our servant His entire life, not just during... His public ministry. So Christian, that is the question then. Can you do that? From new birth to death. Can you do that? Can you empty yourself of everything, every second of every day, because that's what you're commanded to do and commanded to have. See, we we gloss right over it. We read the the cost of discipleship, right? Right? In the text, you have to die to this and hate this and hate that. And then we never do that, but say that we would. Right? And if somebody does try to do that, if, if some Christian hears that you got to sell everything, give it all away, everything, when they decide to do that, what do we do? Stop them. No, 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 don't do that. God wants us to use wisdom here. Right? Don't move to Burkini Faso to be a missionary. You'll get killed. How are we not all moving to Burkini Faso? Right? Well, Jesus... And then there you go. Well, Jesus didn't mean... Oh, okay. Okay. All right. What does it mean to take a text seriously? Right? What does it mean to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Just want to be able to say that so that you look conservative? Or are you actually going to do what the book says? Because if you're not, it's really irrelevant that you would say that. That was the issue with fundamentalism. Where about the energy or solidness of God's word? No, you're not doing it, so why don't you quit? You're not giving anything away. You're not dying to self 24-7. What, what are we talking about here? Can you do this? Are you willing to do what it takes to sit in the back seat for the rest of your days on earth? No, no, no. To sit in the trunk for the rest of your days on earth. Can we literally live every waking moment with the mind of Christ? And by the way, Jesus wouldn't have sinned when he dreamed either. So it's not just our waking moments in which we'll have to be perfect. So who's in? You want to get serious? All right, then get serious. Do it. Because it's not suggested, it's commanded. We have Jesus here as our example. That's terrifying. Jesus is the mark to hit? Is being a Christian simply trying? Now that we have Christ to do these commands? And and let's just, this morning, let's just focus on this one. Can we follow Him in this? Because such things are what God means by good works the works of Christ. That's the righteousness God apparently accepts, and that's all He accepts. Jesus' goodness before God came out mainly, if you'll notice apparently, in how He served others and not Himself, even to the point of death. Is that the righteousness you desire to perform, beloved? Because that's the righteousness He is talking about. Do you want to die to yourself 24-7 for the sake of other people? You aren't doing your good works for God. You can't impress Him. He's got Jesus to His right. You are not going to blow Him away with your commitment, your desire, your obedience. So stop trying to impress God or do for God with your good works. That's not what Jesus is asking you to die to. He's asking you to die to self so that you may serve the people right in front of you. Nobody wants to talk about that. Your neighbor, your enemy, the guy across the street, the woman down the street, the waiter, the waitress, the mechanic, he might take you for everything you own. Are you going to serve him? Not if he sins against me, then you aren't Jesus. Am I just supposed to be taken advantage of? Yep yeah you're telling me that I'm just supposed to be a doormat for people yes so who's in what do we think Jesus was like he he just didn't cuss my father-in-law to my knowledge never believed in Christ I never heard the man use a single curse word he was the most respectful, upstanding gentleman I've ever had the privilege of knowing. He was the kind of man you wanted to be like. He had been a Green Beret. He had fought for his country. And he was bad. He was he was 76 when he passed. I still wouldn't have messed with him. No way. Right? He was a good man. Loved his family. Worked his tail off. Took care of everything that we say you need the Holy Spirit to do. Or you're not serious. He didn't have him. Why did Jesus die? If all that you need is just, I, I want to be right. I want to be good. No, we, Jesus went the full length of what God required for us to be justified before him. Jesus did that. We're not going to do that. That's not our task. Our task is, however, to have the same mindset toward anything we could count as gain or might want to use to our advantage. Anything, good or bad. Divinity was holy. And Jesus said, I I, I won't use that to my advantage. The level of death to self that has to be died is impossible to attain to so what are we supposed to do? If, I mean, if, if you're not doing this perfectly, you're disobeying each second you're not. If we believe the Bible's inerrant and infallible and sufficient and authoritative and are going to take it seriously, rather than just be able to say, we're not them liberals, right? That's having the mind of Christ. Jesus wasn't dying to atone for his own sin, beloved. That's not the mindset we're supposed to have. Jesus' mindset, he, he didn't die atoning for his own sin. He died atoning for ours. So what I have to die to includes performing righteousness that will justify me before God. So, Tony, I, I, I don't believe that, that, that. That's what my works are doing. That's not what my good works are for. Well, then what are they for? What are they for? Why are you doing them? Because I I, I just want to be thankful to God for what He's done for me. It's not going to be enough. Because you're still going to fail. So our offerings are going to be pretty piddly. Well, God looks on my heart. Right. And that's why He sent Jesus. Because your heart's disgusting. And so is mine. Right? I mean, do we believe the Bible or not? Do you have the mind of Christ in all your good works? You know, if, if that's the case, how is your daily death walk going? How much are you dying to self? Are you dying enough to self that you have time to be worried about whether or not others are dying enough to self? Are you going to use your commitment to die to self to your advantage in the faith? Right? Right? Dying to ourselves every day like Jesus did, counting that much as loss? J- Jesus didn't even have a home. So if, if you really wanted to be Christ-like, right? That's what you really wanted. Okay, let's just call it out on the carpet. What exactly do you want to be and to show? Jesus was willing to die in a manner that meant he'd literally been cursed by God by hanging on a tree, Galatians three thirteen. So, do you have the mind of Christ this morning? Do you think like Jesus did? Do you do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit? Not just at church, not anywhere else, not in your marriage. You, you never do something for your own advantage or out of selfish ambition or conceit in your marriage, ever. Well, Tony, no, nobody, but, but that's the standard. The mind of Christ never sinned. So, well, he doesn't, he didn't mean that. I thought the Bible was inerrant and infallible. What do we think he means? Occasionally I want you to think well enough to do good. No, beloved, that wasn't the mind of Christ. Are we willing to look out for other people's interests to the extent that Jesus did? That for the sake of your advantage, not mine, I'll die. Right? To the extent that Jesus did, right? We're, we're, we're not talking about, well, I'm going to die to self. I'm, I'm not going to take the last glazed donut because I know that brother Harold wants it. So I'm going to count others more important than myself. We need more grace. I'm telling you. Right now, I'm asking you, right? Maybe, maybe you're frustrated with me, angry with me. I, I know this, this. Just can you take a minute, please? All right. Forget about me for a second. Let the law of God perform its function in you right now. Are you obeying this perfectly all the time never failing so what God doesn't God. then why did he command it do we think he commanded it so that we don't have to do it or at least not do it as seriously as he said just take a minute I'm going to be quiet for a minute and let the law of God do it God how seriously do I really want to be about Good works and service. Tell me, Father, by this text, whether or not I have the mind of Christ. All right, Tony, you win. I can't do that perfectly or really even partially. All right, then the law, praise God, has done its job. The command did its job. It killed you. Now hear the gospel. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How is that the gospel? Because if you and I could do verses 5 through 8, we would be being praised in 9 through 11. Because that's what you get when you do what Jesus did. Only Jesus can do what Jesus did. Therefore, He's the only one exalted by God to have the name above every name, which isn't Jesus, it's Lord All kinds of people were named Jesus, Joshua, right? That's not the name above every name. The name above every name is Lord, to which everyone must bow. That's the righteousness of Christ. He succeeded. He obeyed God perfectly. Therefore, God gave him this. He is our substitute, not our life coach. He is our forgiveness, not just our wash rag. It's all Christ. See, Jesus left his exaltation in the hand of the Father, and in him we trust. God doesn't call his children to good behavior. He calls them to the righteousness of Christ. If God would have wanted progress, he would have given us a goal. God wanted perfection, so he gave us Christ. When he requires from us what he has already received from his son, we need to understand the reason why. It is so that our minds will be emptied of self until all we love to talk about and show is the love of our big brother and our dad to our neighbors. Jesus didn't come for the palm branches. He came to serve us after the palm branches were thrown away. And by His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and His intercession for us now, he has provided us with all the forgiveness and all the righteousness we need. Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord is the title you get when you do hit the mark to the glory of God the Father. Tony, why do you preach this way so much? And then I'm done, okay? The reason I preach the way that I do, so I'm not saying is Anywhere in the stadium of perfect, right? But why I try to preach what I try to preach is because I don't believe. Tony Romano does not believe as your pastor that the preacher exists in the church to tell you what to do and how to live. You will never get that from me. I believe the preacher exists in the church to point us unceasingly to Christ. That's. My job, I will fail you a million times and a million more if you think of me as responsible for your behavior to the extent that I have to tell you every week and remind you every week how to live as though the problem with us is memory and commitment. You don't need a sheriff or a gatekeeper anymore. Did you know that? Do you know that? That's, that's not what we need anymore. That was what the law did. Until Christ. You have Jesus, Christian. An unbeliever, He can be yours right now. You don't have to wait for the invitation. Call out to Him. He'll save you. You'll be his child, but but you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter now, and it won't matter later. Christians no longer need a guardian, best translated really babysitter in Galatians three twenty four. Now that Christ has come, that's not what we need. Why do we live like what we lack is information and instruction and boundaries and standards? We don't need them anymore. We have Christ. To have Christ is to have the Spirit in you. So there's not a written code anymore. Why do we keep trying to write books on how to live? Do we think Christ isn't good enough? That. That if if we don't put something in, we're going to go off the rails. No, if you try to put something in, you're going to go off the rails. Like, even if you hate it, please understand, I am literally trying to save your life. You need me doing all I can to make sure you don't have any reason to abandon Christ. That's my job. And for Paul in chapter 3, his concern were that his works would do that, by the way, not his sin. Listen, I've talked long enough. Again, okay? You need Jesus, and I need Jesus, and he's here. He's here.